This reading is from the book of Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, good morning. Get situated up here. It's really good to see you. If this is your first time at Trinity, we're so glad you are here. Uh, if you are here visiting because of the Christmas Children's Program, uh, we're so, so glad that you're here. We hope that's a, a blessing to you. That'll be after the, the sermon and, and communion, but it is really, really good to see you. On a quick personal note, thank you for uh, the support, encouragement, and prayers. I've been sick for like four weeks. I'm still pretty uh, fatigued getting over something. Uh, we're working on it. Not contagious. Don't worry if you're sitting up front. Uh, but just getting over a, a, a nasty bit of uh, fatigue. So thank you for all the prayers, support, encouragement, and soup, uh, especially the soup. So thankful for that. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into God's Word together. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful for your presence with us now and always. And Father God, we long to know you as you are. We long to become like you and to become like your son, Jesus. And so would you fill us with your Holy Spirit 
give us uh, insight into your word this morning. And uh, as we uh, are preparing for Christmas and, and to receive the birth of the Lord and, and to remember it, uh, Lord, sometimes it's so difficult uh, to practice and to celebrate Advent because of just the sheer busyness of this season. And so, Lord, would you slow down our hearts and minds even now that we would pause and, and remember uh, all that you've done to make a way for our salvation, that you have even sent your own son into this world, that you have conquered Satan, sin, and death through the birth of a child. And so, Lord, may some of these things settle into our hearts and minds this morning as we hear your word, as we sing your praises, as we enjoy fellowship together, as we hear the, the voices of the children later. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing in a series where we have been looking at the prophets of the Old Testament and how they were, were pointing the people of God forward to the birth of the Messiah that we celebrate at Christmas, that their message of judgment and hope and renewal is one that for us becomes an incredible source of, of encouragement and power as we look forward to the second coming of our King, which is what Advent is all about. Advent simply means arrival or appearing. And so we're looking back to the advent or the arrival of Christ and his first coming. And in the same way, we're longing and looking forward to justice and mercy coming again through his second coming. The Old Testament prophets simply don't get enough love, right? I think it was Cam that said nobody's naming their kids, you know, after the Old Testament prophets. It's not like, you know, Joseph and Mary and Peter and all those great names. You don't hear enough Zechariahs and Obadiahs. You get a few of them here and there, you know, but... But the Old Testament prophets were made to minister before the Lord and to minister before the people, and yet they were constantly rejected and persecuted throughout their lifetimes. Nobody listened to the prophets. They ministered at the darkest period in the history of the people of God. Some of them had, had worse jobs than others. Jeremiah was told when he was called into the prophetic ministry that he would not have a single person heed his warnings, and follow his teachings. Not one. Uh, Jonah, you know, might be familiar with that, got swallowed by a big fish. So some strange jobs in Old Testament prophetic ministry. Maybe, if not certainly, the most heartbreaking of all biblical jobs uh, was given to Hosea. If you know the book of Hosea, it's, it's, a, it's a wild and, and intensely personal book. God appears to Hosea in a vision in chapter 1, verse 2, says, I'm calling you to be a prophet to my people, so going great so far, right? And he says, go and marry a promiscuous woman who will not be faithful to you, and this will be a sign to Israel who has not been faithful to me. So it's, it's this odd and, in, you know, intensely personal narrative. Why would we focus on this the Sunday before Christmas? And the answer is that Hosea is going to show us something that almost no other part of the Bible can. With, with this much power and clarity and intimacy, Hosea is going to show us something true of the heart of God for you and something true of our relationship to him. So I thought about titling this sermon, Redeeming Love. I'm told that's already a like Christian romance book or Hallmark Christmas movie. I don't know. I don't need a sermon title, so we'll go with it. Three themes that we're going to see out of the book of Hosea today, marriage, justice, and homecoming. 
marriage, justice, and homecoming. Now, we'll start with marriage and some of the context of Hosea. Hosea ministered in the 700s BC, and he was speaking to the northern tribes of Israel. And so Israel had split into northern tribes and southern tribes, uh, 10 and a half of the tribes to the north really turned away from the Lord first. So most of the Old Testament prophets, they're speaking to the southern kingdom, the southern tribes of Judah, of Israel, and they were, they were split in their worship of God. So there were seasons of true and living worship, and there were seasons of idolatry, but the northern kingdom was just pretty much a mess. Like, they were just pretty thoroughly sinful. So Hosea is one of the only prophets that's really just ministering to these northern kingdoms. And so the, the message of God's judgment for them was more severe. And yet, as I said, there is something profoundly beautiful about the heart of God that's going to come through in Hosea. Something that we, we cannot do without. If you're asking yourself, why is this book in the Bible? It's because it gives us a message that we cannot live without. And so Israel had to reach their lowest point in this moment. They were consumed with idol worship, the worship of this pagan god, Baal, that all the other nations around them were worshiping. And through the, the following of this idol and this religion, horrific practices followed. So drunkenness, adultery, human and child sacrifices, even other things that can't be mentioned on a Sunday, even though the Old Testament goes there. Uh, we'll just kind of skip over them. But the thing that God focuses on the most in this book is the Israelites' use of temple prostitutes that were associated with Baal worship. So Hosea opens like this, as I mentioned. Here's chapter 1 again. It says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, the land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he, Hosea, married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so this is sort of a, a lived parable, which is something we, we see in the prophetic uh, people throughout the Old and the New Testament, uh, that they are, they are enacting their message to give it greater clarity and power. So in the book of Acts, a, a man comes to, to Paul with a belt tied around his hands, and he said, so shall it be done to you if you go to Jerusalem. So it's sort of the use of, you know, a prop or something to illustrate the message. But for Hosea, it's actually marrying a, a promiscuous woman. It's, she's a prostitute in the original languages. And God tells him that she will not be faithful to him and that this is to, to be a part of his message, that he will be made to feel what God feels on a regular basis. And so Hosea follows the word of the Lord. He marries Gomer. And in chapter one, it says that they have three children together. Now, the point of this whole book is marriage, that our relationship to God is a marriage. Now, this is a theme that comes up in other parts of the Bible, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 62 says it like this, For the Lord will delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In the Song of Songs, we're given the picture of this beautiful marriage and union between a bride and a groom and their longing for one another, which is for us a picture of Christ longing for us, his bride, the church. 
When we fast forward to the life of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees why his disciples don't follow all the customs of fasting that they were doing in that day. Jesus replied, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. And so he's saying, you you don't go to like a wedding rehearsal dinner and tell everyone you're fasting, you know? Even if you're fasting, I give you permission. If you're going to a wedding, just eat, just celebrate. It's a, it's a wedding. It's this beautiful time of celebration. And so Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom and I'm on earth now. These disciples only get three years with me like this. There's going to be no fasting. But when I ascend back into heaven, that's when the fasting can occur. And then in Revelation, I mean, chapters 18, 19, 21, 22, all describing a wedding ceremony between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. And so all of this is God's way of of showing us that God is not just our God. He's not just our king. He's not just our, our master. He's not just our warrior or our shepherd or even our father. Even though he is all of those things, he's also our spouse. He's also the, the husband of the entire church. And so that it follows that if your, your knowledge of God does not include God as your spouse, then your knowledge is, is incomplete. If your relationship to God doesn't function in some ways like a marriage, then it doesn't fully reflect the biblical view of relationship with God. God is saying, you don't fully know me until you know me as your spouse. Now, why is that? We can think about what, what marriage is. My favorite book on marriage is by Tim and Kathy Keller. Uh, Tim Keller says that marriage is about three things, priority, intimacy, and power. And so priority, marriage is to be the number one relationship in our life. And even if we don't think of it as our number one relationship, it still has a power over us that no other relationship has. If you're married, you've probably felt this, that your marriage can be weak, and though everything else in your life is strong, you are weak. At the same time, if you are strong, everything else in your life can be weak, and yet you are strong. No other relationship has the priority that marriage has. And second, intimacy. Marriage is the most intimate relationship. And it's not just physical intimacy, but just think about the intimacy of knowledge that two spouses share. I mean, you can fool a lot of people in life. You can fool your coworkers. You can fool your neighbors. You can fool even your community group. I mean, people can know you and not really know the real you, but in marriage, that's impossible. When you live together, when you do all of life together, when your spouse sees you in in your worst moments and in every moment, there's an intimacy of knowledge there that exists in no other relationship. And then third, power. Your spouse has more power over your life than anybody else on earth. Your marriage has more power than any other relationship. Marriage can heal almost anything you've been through over the course of years. It will shape you into a a certain type of person for, for good or for bad. No other human relationship has the power of transformation that marriage has. And so back to Hosea in chapter 1, Hosea marries Homer, they have three children together, and then it says in, in chapter 2 that she returns to her old way of life. 
It actually uses all of this language of addiction that she simply can't help herself, but she goes and she gives herself willingly to a brothel where she again becomes a prostitute. It then says in chapter 3, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loved the Israelites, though they turned to other gods. And then verse 2, Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a portion of barley. And then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. Now, more on this in, in a moment, but the simple truth for now is that our relationship to God is a marriage. Now, it's a pretty dysfunctional marriage in that one of us is, is quite a bit stronger and, and wiser in, in every possible way. It's a very lopsided marriage. That's part of the point of Hosea, that he is always faithful to us, though we struggle to be faithful to him. A thousand other things capture our attention and and steal our hearts. We go back and forth between fidelity to God and our old ways of life. But it is a marriage. Now, the second theme in Hosea is justice. After seeing the the picture of this marriage in Hosea, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 14 actually don't return to that scene with with Hosea and Gomer, but rather it, it simply declares God's word over Israel. And so we see in chapter 6, this is in the bulletin, Hosea is, is urging God's people to join him in turning back to the Lord. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And then God responds in verse 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So here we have the longing of, of God's people to return, to be restored to God. And then we see the heart of God breaking through. And Hosea is interceding on behalf of the people, saying, return to God. We've been broken and, and injured by the judgments of the Lord. But in the same way, he alone can heal us. And so for Israel, their sin was not just the infidelity, not just the worship of false gods, but it was also the neglect of the poor and needy. That's why God is saying when he's confronting them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, a phrase that shows up throughout the Old Testament prophets and again from the mouth of Jesus. We saw this already in the series through Micah, Zechariah, and Joel. We could see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, a number of other books, that God's heart is for mercy injustice. We saw three weeks ago that there were four whole categories of laws that the Hebrews were to follow that were just meant to protect the poor and vulnerable, the marginalized in their community. They were meant to promote justice, care for the weak, minimize generational poverty, promote the flourishing of all the people. And the vision of, of justice that Hosea gives us is far bigger than any other vision or idea of justice in all the world. I mean, biblical justice includes both moral purity, a true worship of God, true holiness, as well as social renewal and equity. I mean, so many attempts at at justice in our world are just one or the other. It's about just being a good person and following God's laws, or it's about making life better for other people. But all other forms of justice fall short of the biblical view of justice. 
God is constantly revealing his heart for compassion, for mercy, for justice. And so Israel has rejected these these laws that were meant to, to protect the poor and vulnerable. They've been worshiping idols and they've been exploiting the poor. And so God calls them back to mercy, not sacrifice. I mean, as if it wasn't bad enough to be mistreating the poor and to be worshiping false gods. Israel is continuing to do the sacrifices that God had asked the people of of Israel to do. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that hypocrisy is the worst sin in the Scriptures. It's the thing that gets God most angry or Jesus most upset. That we would would honor God in an exterior way to to fulfill some of the laws as, as a way of trying to get right with Him and yet have our farts, our farts, our hearts be totally disconnected. That's funny. <laughs> and so Hosea's message is one of longing and of promise. I mean, I don't know if you see the, the messianic promise here and the, the vision ahead to the cross in chapter 6, verse 2. He says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. I mean, think about that in the midst of Israel's utter brokenness and their unbelievable sin. Through this strange prophetic book of Hosea and Gomer comes this message, a foretelling of how mercy and justice would come about. That all the judgments that God was planning would not fall onto God's people, but onto God's Son. That after two days in the grave, the dead would be raised. And on that third morning, the sun would rise and come forth. Mercy and justice would shine like the morning sun. And so this is a beautiful prediction of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His paying for all the sins of his people. The defeat of Satan's sin and death once and forever. And the result is right there in the verse that we get to live in the presence of God. And so this is our salvation, our redemption, and it leads to our third theme, which is a homecoming. On chapter 11, God speaks and says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. It was I who taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. And so for Hosea and for Israel, this is an obvious reflection on the Exodus. That God had led his people by by a mighty arm out of slavery, out of oppression in this pagan land. They were set free. They were brought home into the promised land. And yet even still, I mean, just chapters after the Exodus, They're grumbling against him again. They're moving away from him again. Over and over and over, the people wander away from God. And so God the Father is is using the language of of parenthood now. He's using the familiar father-child language. The children stumble and fall. The loving father picks them up, takes them in his arms. The child doesn't even realize that it's his own father that has collected him, brought him close, showed him affection. And so our relationship to God is a father-child relationship, but it is also a marriage. 
And God is, is almost trying to do everything he can to show his love for us. That it's the love of a father, it's the love of a spouse. He's using every illustration possible simply to tell you how loved you are. And if we return to Hosea chapter 3, we see that just as Homer broke Hosea's heart again and again and again, God's heart is broken for us again and again, but it's a love that will not let us go. Now in Hosea chapter 3, what we see is that this woman has been put up for sale. Now, what this means in ancient times was that she was being auctioned off as a slave, which was something that Israel was never supposed to do, but it's further indication that they're just following the ways of the pagan nations around it. And so this woman has, has been brought before a crowd to be sold off, which means probably after years or even decades in this brothel, the owner of the brothel now is no longer able to make a profit on her, And because he essentially owns her, he takes her in front of a crowd and and auctions her off. If you can imagine anything more humiliating, anything more shameful, that even the, the owner of this brothel no longer wants you, but is just trying to get a few dollars from you. And so they take her before the crowd in public disgrace, offering her to the highest bidder. And then from the back of the crowd a man calls out 15 shekels. It's a familiar voice. It's the voice of her husband. And probably through broken words, through, through his incredible heartache over the years, maybe as everybody else was offering just a few shekels, knowing that they were getting damaged goods in her, he calls out 15 shekels, which is full price for a slave in that day. He's purchasing her freedom. And so no doubt her entire life had been one of neglect, abuse, slavery, horrific mistreatment. I mean, how could anybody want her still? And this prophet was was no perfect person. He even says there in chapter 3 that you must not prostitute yourself. You must not be with any other man, including me, for a long, long period of time. He's still trying to to protect his own heart and, and rebuild trust. And yet what he is is a picture of God's heart for us. Hosea 3 is a beautiful picture of the gospel, the good news of our salvation. It's a message we cannot live without. There's an old Presbyterian preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, which is like if you get that name, you're just immediately a Presbyterian preacher. I had one of those big, big churches with the tall ceilings and the stained glass. He had like a four-part series on, on Romans, like really academic kind of guy. But he preached for like almost a year on Hosea. And on Hosea chapter 3, which is only five verses long, the title of his sermon was The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. Now, how could that be? It's a message that we need. We need God as spouse. We need the intimacy of this language of marriage if we are to relate to God properly. If we are to see the the great lengths that he has gone to to win us back, not just as servant, not just as slave, not just as child, but as a beloved spouse. It's a message of our redemption, of our longing fulfilled, of our shame being covered, of our coming home to God. And so this then becomes our relationship to God. Priority, let nothing come before God in your own heart. 
intimacy. Don't settle for any false intimacy in the world. There is no relationship like the intimate relationship of God and power. No other relationship has the power to change you like your relationship to God. It's the only relationship that will make you a completely different person. And so this is the the simple message that I want us to to feel and, and to believe today that God loves us with a remarkable, intimate, powerful love. That God's heart for you cannot be described only in terms of obedience or servanthood or even parenthood. He needs the language of marriage and of spouse to show us the love that he has for us. And this should show us once and for all that Christianity is not primarily a a religion. It's not primarily a set of laws that we're to follow, a a set of beliefs that we are to adhere to, a, a certain picture of morality that we're supposed to embody. Christianity is relationship, intimate, powerful relationship with God. And it should show us the great lengths that he went to to get us back. He paid far more than than 15 shekels for us. It cost him everything. Remember, like this poor woman, Jesus himself was brought before the crowd and publicly shamed. He was mocked before an unruly crowd, all so that we would never be covered in shame. He gives his life for you, the bridegroom for the bride. And this is God's heart for you. Despite all of our wanderings and mistakes, he simply wants us back. And this is, this is the message of Christmas, that God lost you, and in Christ he comes to get you back. And though it cost him everything, he's bringing you home. Let's pray. Father God, it always feels almost too good to be true. And yet we look around at our lives and our world and we see all the things that we're turning to in hopes of fulfillment and satisfaction. All these these cheap joys and ways to try to feel alive. And so, Father, we know that our hearts have been created for a type of love that we cannot find in this world, even the the best, the healthiest of all marriages. It still can't fulfill all of our longings and heal all of our wounds. Lord, you alone have made us for yourself. And so, Father, I pray for us who are, are so slow to believe, but even in our beliefs are even slower perhaps to feel and to really know and to really live into the love that you have for us. Father God, we see you layering all of this language, stretching the the boundaries of the human language just to show us of your love. And so Father, may we not resist that in any way, but may we grab hold of it May we see the life of your son laid down for us. Would we see even the the sending of him as a child in the first place, that you would rescue the world, that you would set all things right again through the birth of this little child. And so, Father God, may we 
believe your love. May we feel it. May we live into it even now as we prepare for Christmas. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.